started awesome and extremely appropriate. <laughs> I don't know if that was a coincidence, but that was awesome. Um, hey, everyone. I'm Chris. I, I work for InterVarsity at Amherst College, um, and I get to preach today. It's an honor to get to preach to you guys today from God's Word. Um, oh, if you're first through sixth grade, you should come over here. Rebels. I like it. Um, so yeah, uh, like I said, I'm Chris. Uh, if, you've, if you've been with us, you know that we're going through a series on the Psalms. And um, so you've, you've, if, if you've been with us, if not, let me catch you up real quick. Uh, we've, we've been going through the Psalms in a representative way. So we, we learned, uh, we had, we studied a Psalm of praise, a Psalm of thanksgiving, a Psalm of lament was last week. And this week we have an imprecatory Psalm um, or a Psalm of imprecation which is just a fancy word for cursing. Um, I think it, we use that word because it sounds like a little bit less bad than a <laughs> psalm of cursing. Um, but yeah, it, uh, imprecatory psalms, what they are generally. Um, or first of all, let me say that we're going to interpret this psalm, Psalm 137, through the lens of the New Testament. As, as Christians, as um, people living in a post-Jesus world, we have um, we have Jesus as the lens through which we can read not just the psalm, but the entire Old Testament. So if you're with us through the studying of Deuteronomy, that's how we study Deuteronomy. That's how we study the Old Testament. That's how we're going to study the psalm. Wow. That is probably going to happen again. Um, so yeah, the, when it says imprecation, that really just means a curse, to call down a curse on your enemy or someone who's done something wrong to you. And actually the word, uh, the theme of cursing, um, yeah, the, the concept of curses in the Old Testament comes from Deuteronomy. So it's appropriate. We just studied Deuteronomy. Remember um, when God is making his conditional covenant with the Israelites in Deuteronomy, he said, or he's, he's reminding them of the conditional covenant that he made with them at Mount Sinai. He says, if you follow all my commandments, if you're obedient, if you love me and serve me, then I will bless you. And if you disobey, then you will be cursed. And there's this whole list of curses that will come as a result of disobedience when the Israelites disobey God. Um, so these are, this is the judgment that God will bring in his wrath for their disobedience and sin. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about curses. Um, and so when the psalmist is calling down curses on the Babylonians and the Edomites, what the psalmist is really doing is appealing to God's justice, appealing to God's law that he laid out for the Israelites. Does that make sense? So curse, I think, for us has a different connotation than it did for them. Uh, what, what, what the psalmist here is doing is saying, God, remember your promise to be just. Remember your promise to punish sin. You even see that in, in verse 7, right? Remember, O Lord, the Edomites on the, in the day of Jerusalem. Remember that they said about our city, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundation. They cheered on the destruction of Jerusalem. God, remember that. Remember that you're just. So it's asking God to make good on his promise to punish sin. You get the sense again in verse 9, if there's any mystery when we're talking about um, or what part of the psalm was a curse. It's verses 8 and 9. Um, or for, sorry, 7 through 9. But in verse 8 and 9, it says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Um, so it's, it's calling for um, justice in a retributive way, saying blessed would be that person who repays you for what you've, the, the injustice that you've committed against, against my people, against the Israelites. And that word blessed also, I think, um, 
has a different connotation for us. Some, some of your translations might say happy, um, and, and typically this word in the Old Testament means something like um, that person would be experiencing full wellness and satisfaction. So it's, it's like how we would use the word um, when you're asking for someone's blessing to do something, that you have their approval to go through with it. So this is saying that the person who, who gives justice to Babylon would have the blessing of God, uh, would have the approval of God. They would be in the right in God's eyes. So basically, before we move on, what the curse is saying is it would be right for someone to give you what you gave us. It would be right for someone to repay you for what you've done. Justice is warranted in this situation. That's what the psalmist is crying out, and that's, that's the curse that we're going to look at. I understand that this is a really unpopular text for a post-Enlightenment Western culture. And actually, after studying it, I, I deeply believe that this is a needed encouragement to our church. That this is a, a yes, it's, it's unpopular, but it's a needed reminder and encouragement to us. Um, actually, I'm gonna, where we're going is I'm going to make the case that a proper view of God's judgment will transform our community. And the two ways that um, I'm thinking about that is, one, it would make us a, a radically more forgiving people. And two, it will make us a people who fight for justice. So that's where we're going with that. Let me, let me pray for God's spirit to help us see the scripture before we dive in. Can you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word, God. And we, we know that you say that, um, that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. So Lord, we thank you for this eternal word that doesn't change and doesn't waver with culture. If you would, join me in praying for the person to your right and to your left. I pray that, that God would meet them in a special way, that God would send his spirit into the hearts of the people sitting to the right and left of you. That they would see God in a new way, that they would know him more intimately this morning. And then would you also pray for yourself. Ask God to encounter you this morning. Ask God to soften your heart. Lord, make us a people who tremble at your word. And then would you pray for me also? God, I need your help, God. I ask that you would give me words to speak. Lord, help me to speak truth and to exalt your name. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's dive in here. So if you were with us last week, you know, that, um, you know what a psalm of lament is. And actually, I, I want to say that this psalm, Psalm 137, if you're with me in the text, um, it really starts out as a psalm of lament. Uh, it says, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. So put yourself in the context of the Israelites here. Uh, we know from extra-biblical texts that the Babylonians were a people of war. Uh, they were a military state, and they, they had honed their methods of war. And so when they conquered Jerusalem, they conquered Jerusalem. We know that they were cruel. Uh, we, we know from the text here that they, they literally dashed the infants of the Israelites against the rocks. So the conquest of, of Jerusalem has been a, a bloody thing. Uh, the Israelites have endured horrors beyond imagination. And now they're out of their promised homeland that God has given them. They're in exile in a foreign land, in a pagan culture, after witnessing all of these atrocities, and the psalmist says, there we hung up our lyres. That's instruments of praise. To me, um, 
this, this captures the heart of the psalm of lament. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because Austin preached on it last week and the sermon is online if you want to listen to it. Um, but the psalmist is in a place where he's saying, no more songs. No more festivals or dances. I'm hanging out my instrument. To me, that captures the heart of lament. It's not a time for dancing and singing. All hope is shattered. They're wondering, where is God? You, you may know that the Israelites had a rich history of singing together and praising the name of God. Uh, David had employed full-time people to make instruments and sing praise to God. But they're saying the time of those rituals is over. Some of you may feel like you're in that place right now. Where life is broken and the things that you trusted in have failed you. And I want to encourage you from the Psalms that it's okay that songs and religion don't come for you at times. Actually, as I've been studying the Psalms with the church here, um, the thing that strikes me, and people say this all the time, is that the Psalms have this amazing capacity for emotional depth in multiple directions. You see highs and lows, songs of praise and ascent and thanksgiving, but also despair and lament, right? And I think, actually, that this psalm shows us that the emotional complexity of the psalms does not come as a result of there being a psalm for every circumstance. That's not what makes the psalms so miraculous, is that there's just a psalm for every feeling. The reason that the psalms can carry such emotional depth is because they're about relating to a person. Because having the right song to sing in the right moment won't always help. What kind of song is this where, we, where the, the psalmist says, hang up your instruments, put an end to songs? The truth is that we can get to an emotionally deep place because it's not about the song. It's about the person that we're singing to. That's the emotional complexity that the psalms bring. And I want to encourage you that if you're in a place of despair, a place of lament, when you feel like hope is lost, you don't need religion. You don't need the right song to sing. You don't need someone to whistle a happy tune to you. You need to meet the God of the Bible. You need to meet this God that the psalmist is singing to. That's the heart of lament. And that's where we find the people of Israel. That's the song that they're writing for us here. It's the end of songs. No more songs. It's important to understand that because the imprecation, the curse, comes out of that sort of heartbrokenness when religion is dead. And it's just about relating to God. So we can understand that the call to God here, the call to God's justice is a, is a personal cry for vengeance. It's saying, God, don't you see what's happening? Wouldn't it be right for them to, to suffer punishment for what they've done to us? So it's, not, it's not just a song. It's not, um, it's not a curse like a magical curse that you say and then God fulfills what he said. No, it's, it's a heartbroken cry out to the God of justice. Don't you see isn't this wrong? Wouldn't it be right if this were fixed? God, aren't you going to do something about this? Remember in Deuteronomy, God gives his people the law and tells them all the curses that were going to happen. God revealed his character to them in that way. God said to them, I hate your sin. I hate all sin, and I have to punish it. The psalmist is appealing to, to God's character here, reaching beyond just religion and songs and saying, God, aren't you the God of justice like you told us you were in Deuteronomy? God, where are you now? So now they're in dire circumstances in a pagan city, and they're asking God for retribution. 
the retribution that he promised, calling out for justice. It's not a tattletale prayer. Does that make sense? I understand that um, verses 8 and 9, 7, 8 and 9 still feel really uncomfortable for us. Let me read them again. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall, be, shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Some Christians get so uncomfortable with that, they're sort of reading through the Psalms and they, at 135, Psalm 135, yeah, your name endures forever, God. Psalm 136, your steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 137, ah, Psalm 138, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. The danger of doing that, well, so do you know that in, in Jeremiah 51, God basically answers this psalm. And he says, I'm going to destroy Babylon. In verse 49 of Jeremiah 51, God says, Babylon must fall for the slain of Israel, just as for Babylon have fallen the slain of the earth. So God answers this and says, yes, I'm going to bring judgment. God does bring the city-shattering wrath that Babylon's deserve. That's really important. What that means is that we can't ignore this psalm without intentionally ignoring or editing the character of God as outlined in the Bible. We have to deal properly with the justice of God unless we're going to fall into idolatry or making God into something that our culture likes. God does answer this psalm and shatter the city of Babylon. Speaking from my, my personal experience, in mostly white Western churches, we don't talk about retributive justice. We don't really talk about punishment for sin. Actually, our post-enlightenment secular culture here in Amherst would rather emphasize God's grace and mercy and forgiveness than his justice. We tend to think that as a society, we've progressed away from the need to talk about judgment. Or maybe that was just the God of the Old Testament. Some of you may have heard of a man named Miroslav Volf. He's a prophet to our culture. He's a theologian from Croatia, Croatia professor at Yale. Um, he's seen his home country of Croatia torn apart by war and atrocities. Uh, he's seen violence and war trample on the innocent. And since then, he's now, he's now travels to countries that are war-torn and offers hope to Christians. And he says that, this is a quote, violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, that idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. You see, ultimate justice, the judgment of God, is, is hope for the victims of injustice. A God who cares about justice and hears the cries of the oppressed is the boast of those enduring persecution. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that to say that God's judgment is offensive is actually a very privileged stance. It, he says it takes the quiet of a suburb for that thesis to evolve, but it dies in a place where the innocent are suffering injustice. Because the fact that God is going to make things right, the fact that God is going to put an end to sin and injustice is the boast of those in suffering. The boast of those in injustice is actually hope. Because the truth is that if there's no justice in the world, what hope is there? If God's not going to make things right, what hope do we have? Think about the, the Me Too movement, all the women coming forward, exposing um, 
sexual assault, sexual harassment in the workplace and other places. So much of the righteous indignation of these women, these victims, beyond just the offensiveness of the crime, is due to the fact that justice is delayed or deferred or denied. Right? They're crying out for justice where there hasn't been justice. And if God isn't going to make it right, what hope is there for victims when worldly institutions fail? If our justice system isn't going to get it right, what hope is there for the victims of injustice? No, our hope is sturdier and more sure than hope in human institutions to make the world right. It is good news to the suffering that God is a just God, that someday sin and injustice is going to end. Even when religion and festivals and joyful songs won't fix it, God says, hold on just a little while longer. Everything's going to be all right. That he sees the tears of his people, that he cares about injustice and he's going to make it right. We trust in a God who promises to make it all better, who promises to put an end to sin and death. We trust in a God who says that one day there will be no more crying. That's good news. One way that this has personally convicted me, this truth has personally convicted me, is um, the question that if, if the justice and judgment of God is such a message of hope to the oppressed, why is it so offensive to us? If the message of God is the message of God's justice is hope to the oppressed, why is it why does it offend our culture? Why do we hate talking about justice? I think there are multiple reasons. And yeah, probably need to pray about that for yourself. Um, one reason is that we we just as a culture don't believe that sin deserves judgment. We think that people actually deserve grace which is a contradiction. It's, it's judgment that surprises us, but we think that people deserve grace. We have it backward. Right? It's grace that should surprise us, right? The best example is Jesus. Jesus being reviled by his countrymen, betrayed by his friends, being spat on and mocked, though he was innocent, Listen to the words of the psalmist again. He says, blessed shall he be who repays you for what you've done. Jesus could have said that. Jesus could have cried out to God and said, God, do something about this. He would have been in the right. He would have had God's blessing to say that. He could have said, God, repay them for what they've done. God, pull them apart on the cross that they've built for me. He would have been justified in saying that. Justice in that circumstance would have been very unsurprising. It would have made a lot of sense. The Son of God being mocked and scorned by sinners, being spat on. Yet what does Jesus say? His Father, forgive them. That's the scandal of grace that we're singing about. Even as he was suffering judgment from God for the sins of his persecutors, he could have had God's blessing. Instead, Jesus was cursed by God to redeem us from the curse that we deserve that comes from disobedience to God's law. In Galatians 3, Paul says, Christ redeem us, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Christ bore the curse for us, offering forgiveness for us. That curse in Galatians, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, that's Paul, Paul is citing Deuteronomy. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That's Deuteronomy 21. That's a curse that God says will come to the disobedient 
And Jesus becomes a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of our sin. Meaning that the judgment that we deserve for our sin, for being disobedient, the righteous, warranted judgment that we deserve, Jesus bore for us so that we could be redeemed from the curse of sin. What I'm saying is this. When we interpret these psalms, the cross turns our experience of God's justice on its head. It totally changes everything. All of a sudden, the innocent one suffers the punishment and the guilty go free. The same city-shattering wrath that God poured out on the Babylonians, God poured out on his only son, the innocent one, suffered the wrath of God. There is no culture that will ever find that kind of justice unoffensive. God's grace is a scandal for all time. But that's who our God is, the one who's willing to endure the worst things imaginable in order to demonstrate his unconquerable love for us. The cross and the resurrection of Christ the Messiah demonstrate both that our sin is horrendous and deserves punishment and that God's love can overcome even the worst of sin. This is God's just scheme in the Bible where the innocent one suffers so that the guilty ones can go free. The guilty ones, you and I, can go free if we place our faith in Christ. Because Jesus has borne the punishment of sin for all who place their faith in him. Until he returns, he's offering pardon to the worst offenders. And we live now in an era where God is suspending judgment for sin so that sinners will repent and run to him. So in the New Testament, we have a different model for enduring persecution. In which we not only cry out for justice like the psalmist, but we also offer the hope of forgiveness afforded by Christ's sacrifice for the whole world. We get to bear the good news that God's forgiveness, of God's forgiveness to a world that desperately needs it. That's how we deal with injustice. Not just calling down curses. Yes, calling out injustice, but offering forgiveness because that's what Christ did. That's God's scheme of justice. And I think a proper understanding of that will trans- would transform our community. Let me highlight two ways, practically, that this would transform us. The first is that it will empower us to fight for justice filled with hope that God's kingdom is coming inevitably, that justice will be the final word. The first is that it will empower us to fight for justice filled with hope that God's kingdom is coming. And the second is that it will strengthen us to endure everything for the sake of making God's character known to the world. The first one, that we become a people who fight for justice fueled by hope that God's kingdom is coming. You see, God said that he would come again and bring justice and put an end to sin and establish his reign in righteousness. He promised. Jesus said that he was coming back. Do you believe that? I think, actually, in our culture, that, that's sort of something that we say is true, but we don't believe it in our, in our heart. Even among Christians, that Jesus is coming back. I want to reiterate to you that God promised that he was coming back. He promised that he would initiate a reign of righteousness, that he would promise that he would put an end to sin. Historically, there's a ton of examples in the Old Testament of God promising something. You know what happens when he promises it? Is it comes true. And historically, God's people stop believing in God's promises, as our culture has today. Actually, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you'll see that he, for years, tells the, tells the Israelites, God has told me he's going to destroy Jerusalem. Judgment is coming. He's coming to destroy the city. Repent. And no one listens. And God comforts Jeremiah in that prophetic ministry, but Jeremiah continues to cry out to the people, repent, judgment's coming, and no one listens. 
for years. In fact, all the other prophets were saying, that's not true. Peace, peace, it's okay, we're all good. It was a time of prosperity, and no one listened. You know what happened? Out of nowhere, judgment, just like Jeremiah said, God has promised that he's coming back. Jesus will come back and make things right. We would be fools not to believe God's promises. It's not a wise thing to do. But if Jesus is coming back to make things right and to establish righteousness and put an end to injustice, until that day, you and I should be working to build his kingdom now, right? We should be laboring to establish the character of his kingdom on earth. If God is offended by injustice, and he is, and he will one day put an end to sin and injustice, then you and I can strive towards justice now, knowing that our work is not in vain with full hope that one day justice will win. One of my favorite preachers, Reverend Dr. Brenda Salta McNeil, some of you know her, I would recommend her, um, puts it like this. They're building a new science center at Amherst College. And uh, even since the first day of, of, of tearing down my old dorm and digging up the ground, when it was just a, a plot of dirt and mud, they had a sign with a picture on it of what the science center was going to look like, complete with little trees, it looked amazing. The whole like, grass is all grown in, the building is all completed, little trees, little people walking around. It looked like a wonderful place, and they were going to build it. If human beings can be that confident about the things that we've started, how much more can we trust God to accomplish his promise to build the kingdom that he said he would build? He's described it for us in the book of Revelation, a land of everlasting righteousness where sin has no say and death is no more. He says there's going to be no more tears he promised it. He's given us a picture of it. It's coming, just like our science center is coming. Actually, much more sure than the coming of the science center, which keeps being delayed. <laughs> so we can work to build the kingdom that Christ inaugurated as his resurrection, that he's told us he's gonna, that he's going to finish history with. Filled with the hope of the coming glory of our Savior, we can labor against injustice, knowing that our work is not in vain and that success is sure. Christians should be the most hopeful and passionate laborers for justice in the whole world. Because we know the end of the story. One last word on this point. You can't give hope to people that you don't know. You can't bring hope to situations that you aren't in. You can't speak life to the suffering if you're not within... Um, range of speech of them. You don't get close enough to listen to the cries of the hurting. I think this is one of the main areas of growth and repentance for those of us who are very privileged. This privilege often looks in our culture a lot like transcendence. When we can transcend the problems of this world without being affected by them. We can't speak hope or call out injustice in situations that we haven't gotten close to. Christ had to be incarnated before he could speak hope and life and die for our sin and be resurrected. The incarnation, the gritty work of getting into the dark corners of the world was a prerequisite for a resurrection, for triumph. So to those of us, of us who have the, the privilege of being able to transcend issues, a prerequisite for working for justice is laying down the privilege and getting into the grit of the world. When we understand God's justice, we become a people who can draw near to suffering and strive for justice, fueled by hope.
That's the first way that this truth would change us. The second is that if we were assured of the final triumph of justice and of our own personal pardon, we could endure trials with grace and forgiveness for the sake of making God's name known in all the earth. To trust in God's coming judge, judge, justice plus have full knowledge of his offering forgiveness for our sins is the recipe for otherworldly forgiveness. Let me say that again. To trust in God's justice coupled with knowledge of his offering forgiveness for our sins is the recipe for otherworldly forgiveness. To trust God to make things right means that you stop keeping record of wrongs. It means that you stop holding grudges. It means the end of vengeance and unforgiveness, both regarding huge offenses and petty conflicts. Trust in final judgment and knowing intimately that you've been forgiven for your sins gives you the strength to forgive your own enemies. It gives you the otherworldly ability to bless those who dismiss you, to pursue those who reject and scorn you, to demonstrate love to those who revile you, to pray for those who persecute you, as Christ said. Because you don't have to worry about having the last word or protecting your status or winning the argument when you know that you're a sinner who's been declared righteous by the Most High Judge. You don't get offended by slights against your character or you, need, you don't need to assert your excellence. You can let offenses slide because you know that God is the righteous judge, that God is going to make it right, that God sees your suffering. Listen to the words of Jesus at the end of Matthew 5. He says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, I think when we're using that proof text, we often forget the next phrase. It says, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. To be a son of the Father means to, to carry the, the genetic code, to carry the character of the Father, to show the world an image of the Father to carry the Father's values into society, to represent your Father well. So Jesus, nearing the point of death, literally prayed for the forgiveness of his persecutors, and we ought to do the same. So the charge is this. Will you suffer for the cause of Christ so that the world will know your Father? Will you bear injustice without vengeance, without holding a grudge, without reviling those who persecute you? Will you pursue people in love, even when they scorn you? Listen how Paul describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech and the power of God, with the rep weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Did you hear that? That's how Paul commends his ministry and his life. He says, people treat us like we're dying. They punish us, but we're not killed. They, we're sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. We're treated as poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, yet possessing everything. Are you ready to do that? Do you see how countercultural and otherworldly this witness is to Jesus? Jesus' recruitment program was to call people to suffer, 
to call people to come to him and die. The truth is that if you expect that living for Christ will mean ease and exaltation for you, your flame will quickly burn out when things get rough. So are you ready to suffer and forgive? The Bible is actually very clear about this. If you're going to make Jesus Lord of your life, you're going to suffer. Some of you know that by experience. You might not suffer death for your faith, but you might. I actually think that some of you are called to go to the hardest to reach places of the world where physical persecution is a reality and to share the message of Jesus at great personal cost. Others of you will experience persecution in your workplace or persecution in your family. Maybe written off as the crazy one at family gatherings or experience snide remarks from your parents, from your little brother. But you will suffer. Actually, if you're considering the claims of Christ today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to hear this too. Jesus offers forgiveness for sin in return for your whole allegiance, your whole life. It will transform everything. It'll look totally otherworldly. It's not the type of victory that our culture celebrates. I want to tell you that it's totally worth it, that you should take the offer, that there's nothing in the world that could be better. I watched a video recently of a woman in Egypt. This is on national news in Egypt. And the reporter was in her home interviewing her while the anchor was back at the studio and they had a split screen. And the reporter is just handing her the mic. She's talking about how her husband, or her father, sorry, her father was killed by um, Islamic extremists because he was a Christian. And the woman just keeps repeating I forgive you. I forgive you. She also says, if, if they just thought about what they were doing, they would know that this is wrong and they would stop. But I promise, I forgive you. I'm not upset. And she prays, God, forgive them. God, forgive them. Over and over again. It's stunning. The anchor on the, other, on the split screen is stunned. When she finishes talking, he's quiet for about 15 to 20 seconds absolutely speechless. He's not a Christian, but his reaction is this. After 15 seconds of stunned silence, he says, Egyptian Christians are made of steel. Egyptian Christians for hundreds of years have been bearing many atrocities and disasters. The Egyptian Christian deeply loves her country. The Egyptian Christian bears everything for the sake of this nation. He says, oh, how great is this forgiveness that you have? He's baffled. He says, if your enemy knew how much forgiveness you have for him, he would not believe it. He says, if it was my father, I could never say this. And then looking at the camera, he says, these people have so much forgiveness. This is their faith and religious conviction. These people are made from a different substance. This woman had been born again, understood that her, faith, that her sin had been atoned for, by Christ, and that God was going to make everything right, that all the suffering in the world would be put to an end. 
And so she can offer free forgiveness to people who have wronged her in unimaginable ways. And the watching world is baffled by this otherworldly witness and forgiveness. This is how we're called to bear witness to God's character. The God who suffered injustice so that we could go free. Our suffering will likely be less dramatic and less severe, but the call is the same, to lay down all of your rights for the sake of sacrificially loving those around you so that the love of God that was first embodied by Christ's sacrifice for us would be known. Not cursing, but blessing us while he took the curse. That's the call. Let me pray for us and then we'll do communion. Lord, we thank you that you have not counted our sins against us, God. We thank you that your love conquered our sin, God. That even while we revile you, God, and we sin against you, yet you have borne the curse of our sin, God. That instead of cursing us, you bless us. Lord, we thank you that you've made a way that we can know you. And we pray for deeper intimacy with God, God with you. We pray that, that you would empower us to bear witness to your suffering love. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to